Hi there, you're listening to What Are You Going To Do With That? The podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, a PhD candidate, and in this episode, as usual, I'm going to introduce you to an early career researcher and the story behind how, in this case, she got where she is now. If you'd like to know more about us or our guests, check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for pictures, bios and publications. You can find us by searching for what to do with that or with at what to do with that, where the two is spelled as a number two. And remember, sharing is caring. So today I'm chatting with Dr. Shelley Turner. And Shelley has a BA in Anthropology and Advanced German from the University of Melbourne and also a Bachelor of Social Work with Honours from that university. In addition, she has a graduate diploma in Outdoor Education from La Trobe University. Before starting her academic career in 2015, she worked for more than 15 years in direct practice, clinical management and senior executive policy officer and project roles in youth justice in New South Wales and Victoria. Shelley also has more than 10 years experience as a contract researcher and consultant to organizations in the criminal justice and community services sectors. Dr. Turner finished her PhD in September 2019 on how youth justice clients understand and experience case management from their own perspectives. Her thesis achieved an old metric rating, which is a system that tracks the attention that research outputs receive online of 26. And this thesis has done particularly well as it is in the top 5% of all research outputs ever tracked by Altmetric. Currently, Shelley is a senior lecturer at Monash University in Melbourne, where she also teaches and researches in criminology and social work and simulated practice, as well as ethics, human rights, and the legal context of social work practice. She is now working on research projects that focus on supporting students to deal with aggressive behavior on field placements, criminal justice knowledge, co-production, youth justice case management, and after-hours youth bails and remand decision-making. Her research output has been published and presented at various conferences. So, welcome Shelley. I'm glad to have you here today. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. You're welcome. Not only because I can't stop thinking about Australia, since I've spent some time there on a working holiday visa just two years ago, oh but also because I haven't had a guest from your field of social work yet. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> what time is it with you now exactly? Uh, it's just after 8.30 in the evening here. So it's uh, winter time in Australia and I'm in Melbourne, which is in the southern part of Australia. So we uh, we actually had frost this morning. It, um gave Holland a run for its money, which is, I know we share that background. Um, so yeah, it is, it's That's fairly right. cold here tonight. <laughs> well, I'm in the Middle East in the middle of the summer, but it's not actually that hot yet. And we're not only seasons apart, but also a few hours. It is now 1.30 in the afternoon with me. Yes. Um, so I thought it would be okay enough since it's already noon or past noon to have a sip of my favorite drink. Amoretto, which I have here right with me. Perfect. I'm going to pour myself some. Oh, you are, you are a woman after my heart. <laughs> what about you? What are you having? I'm, I have a drambuie. <laughs> Ooh, nice. 
All right, let me pour this one and then I'll be ready for the next step. Excellent. Oh, and we got a cheer, of course. Cheers, there you yeah, go. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> All right, let's kick off with some short questions Perfect. then. Number one, has your kids back to school after Corona morning routine changed compared to the one you had before Corona? Oh, good question. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. So I have uh, two children, five-year-old and a seven-year-old or eight-year-old. Sorry, she just turned eight. So for my five-year-old, thank you. <laughs> for my five-year-old, it's her first year at school. And uh, before the coronavirus hit, we just had a lovely uh, dropping off right in, you know, right outside the classroom and getting her to line up with all her friends, sometimes holding hands right up next to each other and then going in to see the teacher. But now we have to drop them off in a, an area where we're all sort of cordoned off with these uh, flags and little areas where we have to be a long way away from the classroom and we have to let her walk with her sister, thankfully, all the way from the flagged off area right over to where her classroom is. So her second day back, she was pretty disturbed because several teachers had masks across their faces. So I think it all looked a little bit spooky. So yeah, our routine has changed a bit, but now they... They've been back nearly two weeks now, so they are settling in. They're, they're coping well. <laughs> it must have been difficult, yeah, to get started like that. Yeah, it was. It was. And also at home? Yeah, I, th I think for my five-year-old, she was trying to make sense of, you know, starting school for a few weeks and then suddenly school was at home and then suddenly it's back again and because it's been a, a staged uh, return so only um her age group and the grade one two and three have gone back to school all the older children are still not yet back at the school so she asked me actually why is it mum that you and dad are able to be at home and all these older kids are at home and we have to go back to school <laughs> and it's a good question and I said well I can't really answer that I think it they think it's safe so we just go with it and see how it goes. I guess that's the way you have to go about it right you have to believe that this is the best way for everyone eventually. Yes, yeah, I think you just have to be pragmatic and, and, and see where it takes us. All right, thanks. Maybe a little bit of an easier question then. Would you rather be without internet for a week or without a phone for a week? <laughs> well, we just were without internet for a week oh. because we moved house in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, we moved just before Easter, so that was a few weeks ago, just as everything started to go into lockdown in Australia. And during that time when we transitioned our internet from one house to the other house, the internet supplier was completely unavailable for, you know, domestic or residential services. So it was a bit of a nightmare because I was ready, getting ready to teach online as well through the university. Uh, so we had eight days with two little children, not at school, moving house with no internet. So I think, uh, we did it. We survived it. So I think I would prefer that actually over no phone because at least with the phone, we could ring people and talk to people and connect with them. And there was some internet through the phone, even though it was very expensive. Right. <laughs> and with the phone, you could call someone to please help you hook up to the internet again. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
And uh, my mum played uh, card games with my eldest daughter that way. <laughs> oh, board games came back, right? Yes. <laughs> That's nice. I like that a lot too. All right. And what was your favorite subject in school? Oh, uh, well, I think uh, that, that changed a bit. I probably really enjoyed English most of the time, so English language and literature. Uh, but I also really enjoyed uh, music and art. So they were really my favorite subjects even though I didn't really pursue them in the long run. But I really had a, a lovely music teacher at school. I played uh, drums, percussion oh, for a long time. Nice. Yeah, so he was a lot of fun and it was a good group and we used to laugh a lot. So it was a fun class. So I think that prob probably that was really my favourite in terms of not learning too much, but it was enjoyable. But I, I found uh, English and literature really intellectually challenging and interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. I used to play the saxophone for a while when I was a child, but I never did oh. in school. So it's nice to play with others, I think it would have been fun. Yes. If you had one day out of your life to live over again, which day would you choose? Oh my goodness, Danny, that is quite a question. This is a tough um, one. <laughs> well, it's probably a, a really crazy answer, but I probably would choose the day that I gave birth to my first child to live over again, even really? though I don't want it. Yes, because it was a really beautiful day. I was living in Sydney at the time. It was incredible weather. And my first daughter came two weeks after the expected date. So I had two whole weeks not working. Uh, my mum had come up to visit and I had been swimming every day in the ocean. And it was amazing weather with no work. It was like bliss, you know, and it was a time that I would, I'm so grateful to have had because who has two weeks with full pay being able to swim in the ocean every day, spend the time with your mother to have, you know, nice lunches. Uh, it was really, and you had this amazing, you knew something incredible was about to happen, but you don't quite know what your life's going to look like. It was a really magical time in some ways. And that morning I had swum two kilometers in the ocean, you know, with wow. a giant belly. But it was a, just a beautiful time. And this baby was moving around and then... It was exciting that she was coming that afternoon, and she did. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't really want to redo the birth, I'll be honest about that. <laughs> but the, if I could just skip from the morning of the swimming straight to having a tiny little baby, which was an incredible thing later on in the same day, that was, uh, yeah, an incredible day, really. And the weather, you know, in Sydney is just so stunning. It was really, really lovely, really lovely. It sounds beautiful. Minus the actual birth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's skip that bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then last short question. What is on your phone's backgrounds? Do you have a personalized picture or just a random background? Ah, I do. I have a, a photo of my two girls when my youngest was about eight days old. They got into a little bed together and snuggled up to each other. And it's just a lovely photo of their two heads. And I, ha and even though they're a lot older now, I haven't been able to change that background. And I've had it for a long time. <laughs> so that's my background. Yeah. All right. Hi there. Before we dive into Shelley's inspiring journey, I would like to remind you that on our social media accounts, you can find more information about our upcoming guests, see backstage footage, listen to the episode promo, and even play some fun games with us. But even more interesting is that you get to interact with our guests. 
Throughout the week, we ask our followers to submit questions to our next guest, and we choose one question to record into the show. Stay tuned to listen what the audience question was to Shelly. Now, let's go on with the show. Um, now I'm ready to dig into the more important questions or the reason that we're all listening to this <laughs> yeah, episode. <sure. laughs> I've noticed, first of all, that you have two bachelor's degrees, right? One in anthropology ah, yes, and also one in social work. And how did yes. that come about? Yeah, that's a good question. So that the Bachelor of Social Work program in Australia is actually a program that you can't get into immediately from high school. So you have to have done an undergraduate degree or you have to have done a couple of years of an undergraduate degree. So what I actually did was a two-year accelerated bachelor degree program that no longer exists. So now most people would do a master's of social work. Uh, it eventually it has, it, so the same degree today would probably be a master's of social work. Uh, because you were required to actually have done undergraduate study before you could enroll in that Bachelor of Social Work. So that's how it sort of came about. It was a, a strange little hybrid degree that just a few of us have <laughs> that makes no sense to anybody, <laughs> but that's what it is. So it's, um, yeah, a two and a half year degree because it had a full, full year of an honors program built into the degree as well. So you extended by an additional six months in order to finish your honors thesis. And then that allowed you to go straight on to PhD. All right. So when you went into this anthropology BA, you already had in the back of your mind that you were going into social work. No, no, actually not at all. I, I had no idea what I was doing when I did an arts degree, <laughs> which is why I have advanced German as one of my majors along with anthropology. I think I just did advanced German because I thought... I can speak Dutch, I can do this, I'll just do it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I must say, in the end, it didn't really help me. Right? There were times I switched into Dutch by accident, you know, and, and didn't realize I'd switch languages. So there's a certain point in your language study where another language just becomes confusing. But anyway, no, but I really, really enjoyed anthropology. I really loved it, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And at the same time, I was outside of university, I was working in youth work. I was doing a lot of youth work uh, things with the YMCA uh, and I was running a youth leadership program. And I decided then to do the graduate diploma of outdoor education because I thought what I would do is maybe go and work with young people in the outdoors. But after I did my year of outdoor education, I realized I only wanted to be outdoors with people I really want to be outdoors with. <laughs> and I realized that wasn't really for me. I loved uh, being outdoors, but I didn't really want to do that as a job. And I then had thought I would come back to university and do an honors year in anthropology but I didn't know what to do with anthropology. I wasn't sure what you could actually end up, you know, doing other than sort of studying people from afar. And I went and sought some course advice at uh, Melbourne University at the time, and that's when I met somebody who suggested social work. And I didn't really know much about social work. I didn't really have a good understanding of what that was, but it seemed to combine my interest in anthropology and youth work and education 
sort of neatly and because I could do it in two years, it was going to be something that might actually eventually finally get me out of university and into a job. (laughs) That's why I decided to go that way. So I never really had any clear pathway when I started. I wasn't really sure where I would end up. And sometimes people who think they do know exactly what they're doing do end up somewhere else so well that's true yes i'm not sure if it matters <laughs> all right <laughs> and then for someone who's not really from that field can you explain what outdoor education is exactly yeah so i, I mean i must say i didn't really have a clear understanding of it either but essentially you you become an educator so you learn to be a teacher but you are teaching outdoor skills so there were four components to the degree i did one was bushwalking and orienteering So really being able to read maps and compasses, and I was actually very bad at that, to be honest. I was terrible. I got lost all the time. Sounds difficult. (laughs) I mean, I I, I lose my car in a car park, so it really wasn't a good thing for me to do. Um, The other component was canoeing and kayaking. Uh, That I really enjoyed, and I had a major in that. So I think anything to do with the water, I'm pretty comfortable. Sounds like a fun degree. Yeah. (laughs) The other two components were um, skiing or langlaufen and um, rock climbing, so and abseiling. Wow. Yeah, so you had to become relatively proficient in all four areas. And for me, I I think I I really enjoyed doing um, outdoor adventure programs I'd done a lot of those with the YMCA like high ropes courses and sort of adventure activities and I'd also done some scouting where I'd done competitive hiking and things like that but I have to say when I did outdoor education I was a bit out of my depth it wasn't really what I wanted to do but I didn't know until I did it and it was only one year and I survived it but with white knuckles <laughs> I really realized I was scared of heights but I, I loved some components of it uh, but sometimes I think you have to do something to know that it's not what you want to do so I learned from that that actually I was interested more in working with underprivileged groups because that was the other thing that was an eye-opener with outdoor education is that actually People from very wealthy schools have this as a component of their learning, which is why I didn't know about it. I didn't really know what it was. But if you go to quite a wealthy school, one of the private schools in Australia, you may well have an outdoor education component. And so a lot of people who were studying that had come from that kind of background. That's when I realised that really wasn't probably what I was all that interested in doing. I was more interested in working uh, trying to work with people who who really probably needed some support, I suppose. Right. And this component you found in social work? Yes. Uh, in Melbourne, but at a different university. Yeah, so I went back to my old university, probably because I didn't really know where else to go. I mean, I was in my early 20s, I suppose, and... I just, yeah, I don't, I don't think I really had a very strong sense of direction other than that I really enjoyed working with young people. I'd been doing that as a sort of volunteer activity for years and years through the YMCA work. And I wanted to find a way to make that a job because it had been volunteering rather than proper paid work. Uh, and I think if I'd known about youth work in a more formal sense, maybe that's what I would have done. But social work 
was what was in front of me and social work is a lot broader because social work is really about working with people from all walks of life and from, you know, aged care right through to mental health settings, hospital social work, prison social work. It's a whole huge field really of practice, which was interesting too because I realised that, you know, being able to work with anybody is important even if you want to work just with young people because of course they have families they have people who are important to them so you have to learn to actually be able to communicate with people from from all sorts of backgrounds so there you really found like you were in the right place yeah actually yeah i, I mean i really liked immediately the other students i was with as well i think i felt like i had found my people <laughs> And I still feel like that, you know, I, it's funny working for many, many years in the youth justice field where not everybody, in fact, most people are not social workers. Somehow all the social workers find each other usually. And it's, it's takes a little while, but then you realize you are all, you realize that's what your connection is. It's you studied social work. So you're coming from a similar perspective, I suppose. All right. So. At this point, you've then finished your graduate diploma in outdoor education. Yes. And you've discovered the world of social work. <laughs> yeah. And then what did you do? Did you start working instead of volunteering with youth then? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So the social, in social work, um, half of your degree really almost is spent on uh, field placement. So you, uh, well, my first field placement was a research placement with the Youth Research Center. And then my second placement, which was my final piece of my studies, really, besides my honours thesis that I was doing along the side, was with um, the Youth Justice Department in Victoria, or at that time it was called Juvenile Justice. So it was working with young people in the criminal justice system. And I had started working with young people in the criminal justice system through the YMCA as well because I had a little program going where on Friday nights we would go into uh, what was then called the Parkville Juvenile Justice Centre, so the, the detention centre for young people located quite centrally in the city. I would bring a group of volunteer young people who were not involved in the criminal justice system in on a Friday night to play games of basketball with, with these kids. You can't do that kind of thing now, but this was a little tiny program that we had running because the YMCA was also doing recreational programs. And it was, I really enjoyed that work. And I knew from then that that's what I wanted to do. I really wanted to work in the youth justice system. But I didn't really know how to find my in. So my, my final field placement in social work, I really begged them to send me to youth justice. And thankfully, they were able to locate somebody who was a social worker who could supervise me on my field placement. And she was excellent. She was from the UK. And um, I learned so much from her in my final placement. And I, yeah, I just kept working there. After that, they offered me a job. Uh, halfway through the placement, actually, they said if you wanted to continue on, you could stay, and I did. Wonderful. So I became what you would call a youth probation officer then. And did you also continue to work with the social worker from the UK? Y yes, yes. So she continued as my actual supervisor. I had a, a few supervisors. It was a very hierarchical structure. We had senior workers and then some sort of more junior workers and she was one of the senior ones and then above them there were assistant managers and managers. But not all of those people were social workers. So a few were and a few weren't. 
but we had a person who was quite senior in that office who was very passionate about having very qualified staff working with these young people. In youth justice still in Australia, there is no national framework for qualifications or, or for practice standards. So you can really have pretty much any kind of background and work in youth justice. Different jurisdictions have some requirements for qualifications, but there isn't an agreed Australia-wide approach. So it's an area that is pretty underqualified, really, I think, given the complexity of the young people that you're working with and their situations. Yeah, that sounds like, like a shame, really. I think it is. <laughs> and you've worked in this system for about 15 years. Yeah. Before you went back to the academia and started with your PhD. And you've done this these different kinds of jobs, also in leadership roles. Yes. So what made you decide to leave that and then go back to academia? <laughs> uh, well, I was telling you about the day I gave birth. <laughs> That's really what made the decision. Uh, so uh, just a few years before that, I had moved out of really direct practice, which is when I was um, I was the manager of the New South Wales Youth Drug and Alcohol Court Program, and that was a big job and a really fantastic job. I mean, really probably the highlight of my time working in youth justice. But it was also a job where I was on call pretty much 24-7 And so you you can't really have a family life and do that kind of job. So I had moved into a policy position for a few years and it was while I was, no, it was actually when I was still the manager of the Youth Drug and Alcohol Court program that I started my PhD and I started it part-time while still working and it was because the university that I studied at had sent out a sort of email asking for anyone working in the criminal justice system in practice who might be interested in doing a PhD supervised through this consortium that they had put together. So because criminal justice is actually very multidisciplinary, they decided to put together a multidisciplinary supervision panel. And so I, that's what got me interested is that I thought, well, I can do this while working which was really a stupid thing to think because it's pretty hard to achieve it while working. And I did it part-time for some years, moved into policy, and then, you know, life happens. I I, I got pregnant, uh, well, got married, got pregnant, and I moved down to Melbourne, so from Sydney to Melbourne, to be with my mother who's down here, uh, because she was going to help me with the baby while I finished writing up my PhD. And that was the plan. But then life took its own plans and everything went a little bit crazy because two weeks after we arrived here, um, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Wow. And it came out of the blue. We did not expect this. And I had a, a little baby. And so really everything changed. And I, it was in that time that I had to make decisions about staying in youth justice and moving back to Sydney or, you know, sticking with the PhD pathway and then having to eventually change jobs. And I also had to make big life decisions because I was facing uh, treatment that might affect my fertility So I decided that I would delay treatment, delay PhD and have a second baby. 
And these are the kinds of things that happen in your life sometimes. Uh, a PhD takes a back seat. <laughs> and that in that time, I also changed to an academic role because my maternity leave ran out and, you know, you have to eat, you have to have money. So uh, these were the things that became the priority. And uh, teaching, going into an academic role, offered me, you know, flexibility because I was just doing some sessional work. And then eventually I was offered a, a more ongoing position, which I accepted uh, when I had a second baby. So my PhD took a long time to finish because <laughs> it was dragged out through that that time. And of course, there was a lot of emotion caught up in that as well. I can only imagine. That must have been a huge blow to you and your family. But I'm very happy that you're sitting here in front of me. Yes. And that we're having <laughs> this <too>. conversation. <laughs> Yeah, it was a huge blow and it uh, it was just so unexpected and um, it was sort of particularly bad because my uncle, my mother's brother, was effectively dying at the same time from melanoma. So some of the reason for me coming to Melbourne with my husband and my baby at the time was to also be there for my mother and to try to help while her brother was was dying and then yeah it was very stressful to be suddenly the person who was also sick with cancer but you know cancer is a bitch basically it doesn't discriminate and you never know when or how it's going to happen so it just happens and um, we just had to roll with it and as I say I'm very grateful I feel really lucky actually because uh, compared to a lot of people my treatment was relatively straightforward and I didn't have to have terrible, you know, chemotherapy or anything like that. And I was able to have another baby, but it does make you realize what's important or, you know, what choices you need to make immediately in your life. And the PhD, whilst it is important, it, it isn't the most important thing at a time like that. Right. I was going to say that I've had some interesting conversations with others about whether you're, if someone is doing a job next to their PhD, their job is usually related to what they are doing their PhD on. Yeah. So they care a lot yeah. about it. They're very passionate about it. The discussion always is, what is the more important thing? Do you introduce yourself as that person doing that job? Or do you introduce yourself as a student in this PhD in this field? Right? Like, what do you think is more important? Yes. And everyone has their own answer to it, which is totally fine. It's a very personal thing, I feel. But... Maybe I can ask you if it changed for you after hearing the news of having been sick, um, whereas first you were doing the PhD on the side next to your job. Yeah. Or you thought yeah. you could combine it. And then this life-changing events, multiple at the same time actually happened. Yeah. Did that change the way you looked at it or the priorities that you made? It did, actually. I mean, in some ways it made it more critical to finish because I'd come so far, I'd done so much, it was just felt terrible to let it go. Uh, because, you know, it, it took me more than 10 years in the end to finish because initially I had eight years as a part-time student. That was the full length of my candidature. But because I had to take a year out for each baby, because I had two babies, and then I had to take quite a bit of time, and I wish I'd taken more time, really, to to deal with what later was really, I guess, looking back on it as sort of post-traumatic stress. 
I think at the time when you, you know, when I got the cancer diagnosis and when everything was just happening, you just, you just go along with it because what else can you do? You just, you just go through it. It's only later when you, well, when I came through it and I was okay, that suddenly the PhD, it just felt so hard to be motivated. The difficult part then was locking myself in a room and writing when my family were going and doing things and, and I had this awful, I don't know, almost like um, an inertia. You know, it was really difficult to make myself do things because it was in those moments of silence where you should be writing that my head would start spinning and all of these things would come into my mind, you know, these near-death things, these sort of ruminations that were really quite awful but difficult, which I think, you know, looking back, it was that was a kind of post-traumatic stress and it was hard then to to feel that it was important to be doing this PhD. But when I looked at it more, you know, with more perspective, I recognized that I would be really upset down the track if I didn't finish the PhD because my family had sacrificed so much. Uh, you know, so many people were supportive. Right. I had changed careers to enable this PhD. It just felt like so much had been maneuvered that to not do it would be, yeah, I don't know, just like, just a, like getting three quarters of the way there and then not finishing that last bit. But that last bit, was excruciating and it is for everybody anyway. I mean, I've, I've read enough about people's PhD journeys to know that actually that last bit is, is the really hard part. But yes, when I was sitting there. Right. To sit, focus, write. Yeah. And with you on top of it was also still the processing of everything that you've yes. been through because you didn't get a time to breathe. Like any other <laughs> PhD student, you just had to rush towards that end and that, that deadline. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, and I think just sitting in the room by myself made me, you know, think I should really be there with my kids. And it's this awful thing that you start thinking of, well, this could be my last day. Do I want to be spending it in this room writing this thing or do I want to be there with my children? But, of course, that's a ridiculous way to think. You can't live your life thinking like that. But in another way, that's how we're sort of told to think. We're always told to think about this as our live in the moment, but you can't really live in the moment. <laughs> so a lot of those philosophies, I started thinking about them in a more, you know, a more realistic way about what that really means in your life. And if you think like that all the time, you actually wouldn't do anything. <laughs> right. We'd all be uh, not doing a PhD at least. No, that's right. It's too long. <laughs> yeah. So much thinking ahead and planning, things like that. Absolutely. Do you have any tips or recommendations or would you just like to tell us what worked for you to pull through these difficult times and still work on a PhD? Ah, oh, you know, I, 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 I sometimes listen to interviews with people who have gone through major life changes and I think they come out with so much wisdom and I feel like that escaped me. I feel like I didn't get any particular wisdom. I'm sure that's other not than true. just Other than just um, keep keep going, you know, that it, it just is keep going. And, um, I mean, really the support of my family was critical in that. I just, I would never have gotten there without them. It's really their PhD as much as it is mine because everybody had, 
had to help uh, to get there. And I think probably the really the thing that helped in the at the end times was I joined a writing group on Saturdays. And they were all PhD students pretty much. Uh, a few were academics trying to write a few articles. That was very supportive. So sharing sharing the load and starting to normalise some of the things I was feeling and realising that some of this was just normal for a PhD, whether you had cancer and little babies or not. You know, these lots of people were having struggles even if they were on what seemed like the dream PhD, which was to have a full scholarship you know, with somebody who's really involved as your supervisor, all of those things seemed like so amazing. But even those people struggled. So I think once I, uh, and I read this wonderful blog by um, the thesis whisperer is her name online, and she writes about being in the valley of shit. <laughs> I remembered that one. <laughs> yes, and it is perfect because it is exactly where you are before you come out. And uh, once I realised that's where I was and I just had to keep pushing through and I had some very supportive colleagues at work as well who... Um, Towards the hills of unicorns or... That's right. <laughs> that's right. And then it got better. Then it got better. So I think you just have to keep going through it. There's nothing... That's, that's, that's as, as much as I can offer in terms of tips is just don't stop. Just keep going a little bit each day and it gets there. It just gets there. One day it's done. And maybe also finding some supports of uh, peers, people who are in the same situation yeah. that you are yeah. in, to see that you're not alone. Yes, absolutely. Right? No, you're not actually. But yeah, you do have to actively look for that. <laughs> All right. And looking back on it, having done the 15 years of experience in the field of working and also having done the PhD which you have now finished. Congratulations again. Yes, thank you. <laughs> what do you want to move forward with? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I really want to make a difference, I suppose, in the area of youth justice. I mean, my, my interest and my passion actually hasn't changed for that. I still feel that it's such a undervalued area and that the young people who are in youth justice systems are really so unheard in our society. We really don't give them enough opportunity for input and for voice. And I think uh, they really are some of the most marginalised young people. Uh, I mean, we've just had the Black Lives Matters marches this weekend in Australia and obviously in the US. But in Australia, that particularly pertained to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the number of deaths in custody. And although you, that doesn't really equate for young people in the same way as it does for adult males and adult females, the, the treatment of young Aboriginal boys and girls is really just appalling. It really is a despicable situation in the country. And so I just think there's so much that still needs to be done in that space to make it even vaguely equitable and vaguely equate to social adjust, social justice. So that really is my area of interest still and that's where I want to make a difference. I've just finished teaching a semester of a unit on criminology and social work. So uh, I think what I'm really interested in now is translating some of the knowledge I've gained through my years of practice but also through my PhD research into producing, I guess, 
people who can work more effectively in this space, but also challenge the status quo. So it's not just about passively accepting that this is the way our criminal justice system is and going in there and working, but about maybe covertly or maybe more overtly, but working as activists to sort of change that system as well and challenge the way we treat young people in Australia. Yeah, we really have a strong ambivalence about young people in this country. We don't even really have agreement about what a child or a young person is. It, it switches and changes depending on what issue we're talking about. Sometimes we say they're old enough to, to vote or to drive a car, but for other issues we say, you know, well, they're not... Uh, they're not old enough to be able to drink alcohol yet, but then we heap a lot of responsibility on them in terms of their behaviour and how we expect them to, to be. So we, we're not clear on what we think an adult actually is, you know, when it comes to young people. There's a lot of contradictions. All right. And if I would ask you, what are you going to do with that? Would it be more in the field <laughs> of academics or more in the practice field? Well, Danny, if you had asked me this before coronavirus, I would have confidently said this is going to be something I'm going to pursue as an academic career. But as you might know, with the coronavirus, we are now facing uh, incredible uncertainty in our higher education systems. We have had a huge reliance on international students in Australian University for funding. And that is now really evaporated almost overnight, it would seem. And I think the last time I dared read the papers or look at my iPhone news, um, it was talking about 21,000 jobs about to go. And I know colleagues at other universities where, you know, from one week to the next, there was an announcement that there would be 400 positions slashed. Wow. So I can't really say whether confidently academia is where my future lies. And that given that I am a pragmatist, <laughs> I am, you know, looking at, at all options. So wherever I head, it will still be related to youth justice, whether it's through an academic pathway or whether it's by returning actually to working in the public service again and working in a role within youth justice, I don't know. And it doesn't matter for me really too much. I mean, ideally, I would love to continue teaching and, and having some influence over future generations of people who might go and work in criminal justice. But I'm also realistic that that may not actually happen. And um, I've just spent the last semester at home teaching online uh, where there's been really no research allocation or time anymore because everything is driven towards teaching at this point in time. So, you know, that's a first world problem. It doesn't really matter too much, but it is, in answer to your question, I really don't know what the future looks like. And um, that's what a lot of people who are, who are finishing PhDs right now are facing too. So, I mean, I really feel for people who are, at the point of nearly finishing a PhD and hoping for a research future in Australian universities because I think it has just evaporated now. It's a very difficult situation. It is. And it's yeah, like you say, it it's also the insecurity, right? Like we don't really know what will happen next and how extreme yeah. it will get. Yeah. But if I may end right. with a more positive note, yeah. I noticed that you are now part of the academic staff at Monash University yes, in the Department of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences, but you are a social worker. Correct. 
So there might be other ways in in the future to find that one spot that you need to do your activism in. Well, that's true. And uh, it's interesting that you pick up on where I'm located because uh, when we first started talking and we talked about my pathway into social work, uh, many times now people have asked me if I'm a criminologist and I have never thought of myself as a criminologist, but actually all my years of working have been in that same field. So there is an avenue, you know, if I go back to my original degree, which was in arts or humanities, back to sort of sociology and criminology, there it's all there. It's all possible. Who knows where it would go. Um, and social work is one of those fields that can be located in uh, medicine, but it can also be located with sociology or social sciences, and it can also be located with education. So it very much depends on how the university conceptualizes social work. So who knows where I will end up with it all, but exactly. one way or another, it will be to do with young people in criminal justice. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right. So let's cheer to that, to the future in a positive one. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Can we say post? Yes, post, of course. <laughs> Hi there. Before we move to the last part of the show, we have the social media question for Shelly. We've asked our social media followers to submit questions and selected one to record into the show. If you want to know the identity of our next guest and submit a question as well, please follow our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just go to at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. And now to the question. Shelley, how are you doing and feeling nowadays following the cancer treatment and the surgery that you've been going through? So after the uh, diagnosis of thyroid cancer, I went in for surgery. It was called a radical left neck dissection, which is not words you want to hear. <laughs> and I was somewhat fortunate in that the cancer was caught at an early stage but uh, unfortunately, during the surgery, they damaged my carotid artery, uh, which had to be repaired. Uh, there was a lot of blood apparently everywhere. And these uh, tiny uh, little things called parathyroid glands, which are about the size of grains of rice. You have four of them that sit para behind your thyroid. Uh, and they control your calcium through your body, your calcium you know, which you, you need uh, for strong bones and for your muscle movement and for your brain to work, for everything really in your body to work. Those uh, parathyroids became uh, paralyzed or stunned or were possibly even removed with the thyroid. They're not always easy to find. In any case, I um, went into tetany post-surgery, which is where all your muscles seize up and I was put on to calcium supplements and after about um, six months it became clear that the parathyroids were never going to recover. So I'm now taking um, thyroxin, which everyone who's had a total thyroidectomy has to do, uh, but I'm also taking calcium supplementation as well as vitamin D for the calcium to absorb into my body. Uh, so the condition is a chronic uh, disease now that's known as hypoparathyroidism. 
thyroidism. Um, and it is quite a tricky condition to manage because it's one of the only hormonal conditions without proper hormone replacement therapy. Uh, at least it's not available in Australia. There is a, a trial uh, drug in the US, but um, it's still in its trial stages. So that condition has been quite difficult and it was difficult to manage um, through the PhD because some of the symptoms, you know, fatigue, brain fog, anxiety and depression. So trying to unpick what is actually the condition and what is just related to doing a PhD or having small children and no sleep uh, or babies really at that stage and no sleep um, and having to change jobs and all sorts of other things. And in the end, it actually doesn't matter. The symptoms are, are, are what they are and you have to try and deal with them. So, um, yes, that, that, that was the end result of the surgery so far anyway. Um, and that's a condition now that I manage for the rest of my life. So um, it was a bit strange having to explain to my kids why I currently take as many tablets as uh, somebody who might be, you know, in their late 70s or early 80s um, might be taking. So... I think at the moment it's eight, nine, ten, ten pills a day uh, is what I'm on, which is a reduction from the twenty something that I was on when I was um, first diagnosed with the condition. Yeah. I'd like to wrap up and finish with a few more short questions. And the first one is, what would the most important conference be that you've been to? Oh, okay, that's an easy question. I went to a conference called the Reintegration Puzzle, a very uh, small conference by conference standards. It was just in Australia. The one I went to was in Hobart in Tasmania, so the sort of island off the, the bottom of Australia. Very nice. And this conference was so incredible because it involved everybody who's part of the criminal justice system. So it involved academics, but also magistrates, lawyers, judges, and people who had been in prison. Uh, so people with what you might call lived experience of the criminal justice system. And it just changed the whole dynamic of the conference because for the first time, I did not hear academics up on the stage, really, talking about them and us because in the audience were people who had been involved in criminal justice or still were, having lived experience of that. And it really, I think, just changed the way that people thought and spoke about the criminal justice system in general. And it was a very equitable conference and very much, uh, I don't know, at the ground level, I suppose, uh, really interesting, meaningful and forthright. And that was really refreshing. And that has been by far my most enjoyable conference I've been to. That sounds good to get out of the academic bubble a bit. Yeah. Yes, it was, definitely. All right. Have you received a scholarship? Uh, no. No, I haven't. No, no. <laughs> Not for anything. You've always worked on the side, though. I've always worked, yes. Actually, that makes you ineligible for scholarships, largely. Ah, Okay. Yeah, unless you can have economic hardship, you know, but I was sort of always just in between. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm quite quite typical of uh, social work academics. A lot of social work academics have worked for a long time before they become academics. So it's a, a, most social work PhD students are older, and that is something I've noticed is quite different to other fields of practice. 
And I think it might be because many of us have worked for a long time and then we come and do this later in life, either at my age or sometimes even older when they're retired or um, or the children have grown up because a lot of women, it's a very uh, strong, you know, uh, career for women. I've seen that a lot, um, even with our guests. We actually have more women on our show than men. Yes, I noticed that too. <laughs> We're working yes. on that. <laughs> What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Uh, I think being able to um, reflect some of what the young people themselves said about their experiences of uh, being case managed in youth justice. So the fact that I've worked with young people directly for a long time meant that I was able to have access to the young people directly. The, the department allowed me that and the young people themselves, I think I was able to communicate with them in a way that meant they were they would, would, would talk to me. So I think that has been the most important contribution in that uh, I'm not, hopefully, not just writing about them, I'm providing an avenue or a vehicle to hear what they've got to say themselves. And that's certainly what I was hoping to do. So I have to let others be the judge of whether I actually achieve that. But that's that's what I aim to do. And I think that, to me, is important because we we've, have so much that is written about people in the criminal justice system. I wanted to hear directly from them. Again, out of the bubble. Sounds very good. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Oh, goodness me. Uh Well, I suppose it depends on whether we're talking professionally or personally, but uh, I guess professionally, I'm really impressed with any any of the women academics who managed to do all of this with families. And I suppose people like Eileen Baldry, who have written about girls and young women in criminal justice system. I think any academics that try to stay really with the voice of people who are, are not heard, who use their position and their power for genuine social justice purposes. I'm impressed with that. And that's probably, I probably have, I, I've never been one for having a, you know, for having a, an idol or being a fan of just one person. <laughs> so I think I have a big collection of people who I, you know, I follow thousands of people on Twitter because I'm always so interested in what people are doing. So I just think I'm impressed with anyone who's got a positive energy and wants to make a difference. But on a personal level, it would be my mum. Beautiful. And that's probably a really sappy answer, but that's true. She's just always been uh, very supportive and, in and incredible for me. Also very important. Happy to hear that. Yeah, critical. All right, then we've arrived at our last question, which is... How do you relax after a hard day of work? It depends. Sometimes we go for a nice walk at our new park because we just moved. I used to swim a lot, but now probably, to be really honest, it's quite a bit of drambuie and relaxing with my husband and just enjoying a chat after the children are finally asleep. <laughs> That's sort of it. TV then. TV also works. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of... Uh, Actually, one of the things I like to watch, which is a bit silly, but uh, I love watching big wave surfing. Um, I don't do it, but I just find it amazing, these huge waves and how people hold it together. And I'm really enjoying uh, her name's Justine Dupont. She's a French uh, big wave surfer. And so I watch a lot of her videos and live vicariously through her. That's what that if I had my time again, that's what I would do. All right. So thank you again, Shelley, for taking the time to chat with me. 
And I'd also like to thank thank you. And I'd also like to thank our loyal and our new listeners. Don't forget to follow us on social media too. The next episode is coming next week on Thursdays as usual. Alright. So yeah, I'm originally from the Netherlands, we already established. And you've lived there for a few years when you were a child. Dus misschien kunnen we wel eindigen in het Nederlands. Wie weet of er iemand luistert uit het thuisland. Ja, dat kan wel. Dat kan wel. Maar mijn Nederlands is niet meer zo goed. Ik was uh, negen.